Moses is still up on that mountain. God's writing down the laws and commandments that are going to guide the Israelites safely to the promised land and through all that comes afterwards. We looked at the tabernacle last week and at the role of both the priest and the people in the sacrifices. And today I want to talk about God's instructions about the people's relationships with each other. We will be talking about sex, incest, abuse, and homosexuality today. And the words, just the words themselves may be triggering. So if you have been traumatized over any of these, know that God loves you and you are safe with me. As in all our previous lessons, we will find that God has been completely misrepresented as harsh and condemning. Be assured that I will not be bashing you. As we study today, we need to remember that God meets the people inside of their existing culture. He works within their existing social structure. He doesn't fix everything at once. That's not God's way. God leads us, beckons us forward. He points in the way we should go, but he lets us get there at our own pace. It's a slow, organic process. So we'll definitely have to put on our, quote, see through the culture glasses today. Let's use slavery as an example to see, to, for how to see through the cultural context to the direction God is moving with his people. The Israelites owned slaves. Yep, even though they were slaves in Egypt, they themselves owned slaves. We look at that with total condemnation today, as well we should. However, God met them there and spoke to them about changing direction. He differentiated between foreign slaves and Hebrew slaves and focused mostly on how they were to treat Hebrew slaves. He said, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he can only serve for six years. In the seventh year, you must set him free. That's very reminiscent of a Sabbath, right? But look at the next sentence. His wife and children must remain slaves. Ouch. You see, the Lord is moving them towards justice, but is not changing their culture for them. They're going to have to change their hearts before they understand how wrong slavery is. But God moderates the existing custom in the direction of mercy. If the slave was married when he became a slave, his wife may go free with him. It's only slaves he's married and children born while in service who are still considered the property of the master. And the slave gets the option to stay with his family in slavery. Well, that's moving in the right direction, but there's more. Being set free in the seventh year only applies to male slaves. Clearly, another ingrained part of the culture. Yet again, God moderates this. If you're displeased with a female Hebrew slave, you must allow her to be bought back by her family of origin. And you cannot sell her to a foreigner who might mistreat her. And if you've given her to your son as a wife, you must treat her like your daughter. And if your son marries again, he must still provide her with food, clothing, and conjugal rights, or he must set her free. See the new direction towards justice? 
Here's some more. Anyone who beats a slave must be punished if the slave dies. Yet again, God moderates their harshness. It's not only if the slave dies, but if they hit the slave in the eye and destroy it, or even if they just knock out a tooth, they must set the slave free. And if a slave escapes from a surrounding nation, they must not hand them back to their master. So based on this, here's a tool for your backpack for how to go about reading the law. First, identify the underlying cultural norm. It's likely to be pretty barbaric and sometimes cruel. Then look to see how God moderates the existing custom. Compare the two to determine the direction God is moving the Israelites and use that directional heading as your takeaway. So let's apply this to the slavery passages. What we see is that they owned slaves. Slaves were generally owned for life and cruelty to the point of death or injury was not uncommon. God, focusing on the Israelite slaves, moderated so that male slaves would be freed after six years, so females would be treated more justly, and so beatings and cruelty would be diminished. So God is moving them in the direction of treating slaves with respect as human beings. Our takeaway then would be to recognize that God is calling us to treat everyone under our supervision with respect, realizing that they are loved and are seen by God. See how that works? This is a very different approach to the Mosaic Law than most folks take. Most Christians try to divide the Mosaic Law into moral laws which still apply and other sorts of laws which don't. But that approach is superficial and results in tossing out whole chunks of important teaching from God. Besides that, it's really subjective. Using this simple four-step tool will allow you to value all the law, not losing a single jot or tittle which is what Hebrew vowel markings are called. This allows you to see through the cultural context to the direction God is moving, so you can move that direction too. So now we're ready to look at another major category of law, the laws around sex. To say it's complicated is an understatement. There are all sorts of dynamics in play here. The laws on sex are mostly in Leviticus 18, though there are others scattered elsewhere. Verses 3 through 6 give God's overview and the general overarching law, which is, don't do what those who worship other gods do. Follow me only. I am the Lord your God. I am showing you how to do it. Do it that way. My laws bring life. Notice how often he says, I am the Lord. He starts with it and then he peppers it all the way through. These are very important overarching statements. So now let's look at the very next verse. The first thing God talks about. It's about sex. Don't have sex with a close relative. We take that as a given today, but let's dissect it a little. Let's look at why the Lord tells the Israelites not to have sex with a close relative and why it's so very important. Obviously, incest is fraught with the abuse of power. That's why we call it sexual abuse. 
and it has serious reproductive implications, significantly raising the risk of malformed and unhealthy babies. And sex is meant to teach us how to become one with each other in respectful and tender and loving ways. It's meant to teach us how to be vulnerable and still be safe so we can understand that we can make ourselves vulnerable to the overwhelming power of God and still be safe. If we're not safe with our earthly fathers or other family members, then what does incest do to our understanding of God? No wonder the commands about incest are such a big deal to God. There are other implications too, and these are social. Let's add that to our list. Several of the commands, such as not having sex with your father's wife or with your sister-in-law, say doing so would dishonor the man, your father or brother. Why would that be a big deal? Well, probably because this society is built on the family unit and its patriarchy. Remember when Reuben slept with his father's wife? It was a power play against his father, and that challenge had to be answered. For Reuben, it meant that he lost his leadership role in Israel. That passed to Judah. But Reuben's still the eldest, and he's still engraved on the priest's garments. God didn't throw him away, but his actions definitely had an impact on the family power dynamics. And this is a vulnerable, weak nation. They cannot afford to waste resources on civil strife. The reproductive implications of incest also have an impact beyond just the immediate family. If this is a weak, vulnerable nation without fortifications or even homes, and they're heading into a hostile country, what does this nation need immediately and urgently? They need warriors, as many as possible and as quickly as possible. So they cannot afford to waste any reproductive efforts at all. This leads directly to the following set of commands, beginning in Leviticus 18.21. Don't sacrifice your children to the idol Molech. I am the Lord. Not only is this detestable to the Lord as idol worship and destruction of his beloved children, but child sacrifice is also 100% counterproductive. The Israelites need their boys to grow up to be warriors and their girls to grow up to produce more warriors. The very next verse is this one. Do not lie with a male as with a female. That is loathsome, detestable, abominable. And it is immediately followed by this one. Do not have intercourse with an animal. That is a perversion. Right in between sacrificing children and bestiality is the verse that has been used to clobber gay people and tell them they are abominations. If you are gay or lesbian, or if you are a parent of an LGBTQ child, or if you have loved ones who are LGBTQ, this verse is bound to horrify you. It did me, and the reason is because when I thought of the gay people I knew, I couldn't reconcile their faces with the idea of them being disgusting and loathsome. And honestly, I spent more than 20 years wrestling with this. It's worth wrestling with. There are people in this class on both sides of this issue. I started very firmly on one side, 
and over the years, I've migrated completely to the other side. I'm going to share a little of this journey with you so that regardless of where you are in the journey, you can have empathy for each other so you can see that there is room to move. As you know, whenever I read something in the Bible that doesn't align with what I know of the Lord or that jars against the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, I immediately go to my backpack of tools. I research the original language. I look at the context. I do all the things. But I didn't always do that. I didn't have all these tools years ago. So I really struggled. I did look up the original language, but it didn't help. The verse says exactly what it looks like it says. Then something shattering happened to me. A friend I'd worked closely with for years got AIDS. At that time, it was incurable and untreatable. I had no idea he was gay. It wasn't something you shared lightly back in the late 80s and early 90s. And as I sat by his bedside in hospice, I couldn't help but reflect on what a beautiful soul he was. He was not evil or twisted or living a perverted lifestyle. Gary was a normal, kind, loving human being. And that got me thinking about that phrase, quote, gay lifestyle. I'd heard lots of Christians condemning those who choose a, quote, gay lifestyle. And that was clearly associated in their minds and in mine, I have to admit, with rampant prom promiscuity, degrading of oneself and others, defiance of authority and or order, a rebellious attitude, a salacious intent to draw innocent and unwary children into this same cesspool of a life, and ultimately, haters of God, right? That's what the phrase gay lifestyle means when it's used by a Christian. But I was seeing these characteristics daily in lives around me, not in gay lives, but in heterosexual lives. I was seeing these characteristics lionized on TV and in movies, not in gay lives. That wasn't allowed on TV and film back then. No, I was seeing it glorified in heterosexual lives. And this debauched lifestyle was clearly at odds with the godly lifestyle I knew God calls us into. And I realized that some heterosexual people were leading godly lives and some were leading these debauched lives with exactly the same characteristics we'd come to call the gay lifestyle. And then I understood Christians were mislabeling the lifestyle. It's not a, quote, gay lifestyle. It's a universal lifestyle, one that all people can choose or reject for themselves. It's a debauched lifestyle, not a necessarily gay one. And that made so much sense to, with what I knew of my friend Gary's life and the lives of the other gay people I'd come to know. Heterosexual people can choose a godly life or a debauched one, and so can gay people. There is nothing inherent in being gay that causes someone to automatically and inevitably choose a debauched lifestyle. It was obvious to me that all homosexual people did not choose an evil debauched lifestyle. Many chose a holy and righteous lifestyle. And that led me to a really scary thought. 
if I could see that homosexual people could choose to live righteous, godly lives, what would God's response to them be? I needed to know if God would still reject them because they were gay or if God blessed them. I knew the Bible said that God draws near to those who draw near to him. I didn't really need the Bible to tell me that. I knew it simply because it is the character of God. But would God draw near to gay people? Would he let gay people draw near to him? I thought of Galatians 5, 16 through 22. The overarching topic here is that we should walk by the spirit and not by the desires of the flesh. And that seemed to apply to the issue at hand. Here in Galatians, Paul goes on to define these two things. Walking by the spirit yields fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Whereas a life spent pursuing the desires of the flesh yielded fruit of every kind of illicit sexual intercourse, putrid filth and vicious sexuality, indecent licentious conduct, idolatry, sorcery, or harmful use of drugs, hostility, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and other things like that. I translated that directly from the original Greek. Those are two very different lists, very easy to distinguish between. And that brings me to the most important tools for your backpack that I have to give you. This tool comes straight from Jesus himself. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The law and the prophets were what they called the Bible back then. Jesus is saying that no matter what the Bible says, your heart and your actions must align with loving God and loving your neighbor and yourself. The third criteria he gave us is in Matthew 7, 16 through 20 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you can tell good, truth-telling, godly people by their fruit. The same way you can tell if people are lying to you and leading you astray. He said that good fruit comes from a good heart, while bad fruit comes from bad hearts. That's it. Those three things are the yardstick Jesus gave us. And that yardstick must guide our interpretation of scripture. This is a hugely important tool for your backpack. Put it in a place that's easy to reach. So using the passage in Galatians, I can apply Jesus' criterion. I can take these very clear lists of the fruit of a godly life versus the fruit of a debauched life to see whether the heart they came from is good or bad. Sure, all lives will have a mix of fruit because none of us is wholly perfect or wholly evil, but we can sure see groupings of these characteristics in any life. It's pretty easy to tell whether a life falls in one or the other of these lists. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Or vicious sexuality, selfishness, rage, drunkenness, carousing, etc. 
I cannot tell you what a joy it was to realize that the tension in my soul had come from following Jesus' instructions instinctively. I had looked at the lives of my gay friends, and I could see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Their lives were not in any way generating the bad fruit that attends a life devoted to the desires of the flesh. And that meant that God had not thrown away my gay friends. God had not rejected Gary and sent him to hell because he was gay and died of AIDS. Gary's life was full of the fruit of the Spirit, and that could only have come from God. And that meant that God blessed Gary. God blessed his life. God gifted him and called him and used him to minister joy in my own life and the lives of so many others. How many gay people who have chosen a godly life have we as Christians rejected? How many stumbling blocks have we thrown in their paths? How much do we have to answer for? And then I remembered what God told the Apostle Peter, who had always thought the Gentiles were unclean and unacceptable to God, because that's what the law in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy told him. God said to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Wow, I finally understood that the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart was trustworthy. The gay people I was reluctant to condemn were indeed not condemned by God either. In fact, they were blessed by God, used by God, and wholly pleasing to God. And that meant there was something about that verse in Leviticus that I was misunderstanding. Feeling God's hand in mine, I was finally ready to return to that passage in Leviticus and see what it was that I'd been missing. How was I misinterpreting it? It had seemed so obvious before, but now I knew for sure there was something wrong with my former perspective. But no matter how hard I tried, I still couldn't figure out what I was getting wrong. That verse seemed so plain, so cut and dried. It wasn't until I went to seminary that I found the key I needed to unlock the puzzle. I learned that in the ancient world, at this time and all the way to the time of Christ and beyond, when men wanted to utterly dominate and shame other men, they would do it by raping them. This was a common practice in times of war, the public rape of leaders, the rape of heterosexual men by heterosexual men was a sign of conquest head slap. I knew that. I'd already realized that was what was going on in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah way back in Genesis. The culture of the ancient Near East was a warrior culture. To be dominated by another man was anathema to them. It struck at the very core of their society. The context of this verse in Leviticus is not one of a loving, committed relationship. They didn't even have a word for homosexuality. No, the context in the Israelite culture is one of shaming. It is an abuse of power. I want, to, I want to make clear that I'm not trying to imply that Leviticus 18 is talking about a situation of war or rape. I don't think it is. But what this does reveal is what men of this culture believed about the significance of sex between males. 
they could not envision any situation in which one male did not dominate the other. For any male to assume the role or position of a female was completely abhorrent to them because it meant they were allowing themselves to be shamed and dominated. That's why this verse uses those particular words, male as with a female. It doesn't say man as with a woman. It says male as with a female. It has to do with the roles. This is the attitude that was so ingrained that it carried forward for many centuries and is widely documented by scholars. This was the important piece I learned in seminary that I did not know before. And the Lord is meeting the Israelites within their culture as they understand it. The Lord is addressing the shaming and domination of other men. And speaking of power, we've already seen other laws that address the need to keep the patriarchal lines of authority clear. A homosexual relationship between men would blur these lines of authority in the Israelite culture. And on top of that, there are the reproductive implications. Every Israelite of childbearing age must, quote, be fruitful and multiply because the need for warriors and a mighty nation is vital to their survival. Men in a homosexual relationship would not be participating in this urgent task. These trespasses taken together, as with most serious trespasses under the Mosaic Law, were punishable by death for both of the men involved. Which brings up another important point. You can search all day long and you won't find any verse at all prohibiting a woman from lying with another woman. And that makes sense from their cultural perspective. A woman lying with a woman would not interfere at all with her reproductive efficiency, nor would it blur the lines of authority, nor would it dishonor either woman. But wait, you say, perhaps there's no instruction about women because God was only addressing these laws to the men and not to the women. Wow, that uh, idea doesn't hold water either because in the very next verse, the one about bestiality, it specifically tells women not to do it. So the fact that the prohibition about men lying with men is not extended to women lying with women is another solid point indicating that these, this verse is not about homosexuality at all. So to summarize the three verses in Leviticus, from the perspective of reproduction, sacrificing children would obviously be counterproductive. Wasting semen is obviously counterproductive. Bestiality would endanger the health of the man or woman involved and therefore endanger future sexual partners and offspring. Not to mention wasting semen. So see why these commands are listed together? See how they're all related? I can understand why they're in the law for the Israelites at this time. I can see the Lord meeting them inside the barbaric context of their culture where child sacrifice, rape of men, and bestiality were all normal practices. The Lord repeated over and over in this chapter and others that the Israelites must not do what the other idol-worshiping nations were doing. Thanks be to God that our cultural context has changed. But the underlying principles God is communicating remain as relevant as ever. 
Let's use the tools we learned at the beginning of the lesson. Let's look at the direction the Lord is going and see where he might be directing us today in our culture. He's likely saying to us, do not sacrifice your children to the idols of money, keeping up with the Joneses, success, or self-aggrandizement. Do not shame other people or abuse your power over them. Do not have unhealthy sex. Do not disrespect your body. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Finally, after 20 years of searching, I could see the direction God was moving with this verse in Leviticus about males lying with males. None of it meant God was calling gay people an abomination. That was counter to the witness of the Holy Spirit in the fruit of their lives. And it was counter to the teaching of Jesus, who taught us to evaluate right and wrong based on the fruit being produced in the lives affected. Jesus taught us that our response to our fellow humans must be grounded in love, real love, not destruction and devastation called by the false name of, quote, tough love. And he taught that if our response was truly love, that it would produce good fruit in our lives and in their lives too. In the years since understanding this, I have ministered to Christian mothers who tried to erase the gay from their children by prayer, conversion therapy, shaming, telling them they were displeasing and dishonoring God, and even ejecting them from the family. These moms sobbed as they sat in the emergency room after their child attempted suicide. Trying to erase someone's identity, especially if that someone is your own child, damages them to their very core. When a child cannot make the gay go away by fervent prayer and sheer willpower, the child will often choose drugs, cutting, or death to escape the pain of condemnation. This is not good fruit. This is not the fruit of the Spirit. Condemning our LGBTQ siblings has borne the fruit of death. Families have been destroyed. Lives have been lost. And how many gifts that God gave these beautiful people have we pushed away from the church? How many kind and sensitive pastors have we lost to our stubborn insistence that being gay is wicked in God's sight when it clearly is not? And on the flip side, where we have allowed our LGBTQ siblings to participate fully in life, what joy abounds. I often think they're the sprinkles on the cake of life. When we realize that God blesses our LGBTQ siblings and calls them to the place and to the works he has prepared for them in the body of Christ, we realize that we ourselves have sinned against them and against God by not following Jesus' teaching. The sin is not that they're gay. The sin is that we are preventing them from leaning fully into being the wonderful people God created them to be. That's a lot to take in. I know how hard it was for me, and it may be hard for you too. So let's stop there for today. In our breakout sessions, we'll talk about how we cope when our paradigms shift, when things we always understood one way suddenly look different to us. 
be aware that we're not all in the same place on this. Be extremely kind and gentle and understanding with each other. Share without fear. Listen without judging. I hope that the discussion was a gentle one. Um, what did what came out of your sharing today? That wasn't enough time. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. Very true. <laughs> yeah. We, we never got past the first question because we all were sharing our personal stories, which probably covered a lot of what the questions were about. <laughs> right. We, we did the same thing. We, we kind of got through two questions, but mostly we were sharing, you know, our, where we're at on our journey and stuff. But, oh, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Or when he tried to say stuff, I kept cutting him off. So I need to give him. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was just going to thank Diane. Uh, the, the, the stories uh, that were told, uh, well, the, the sharing of our experiences, um, was so moving to me. I found myself tearing up. It was just amazing. Gail, when you were actually teaching, I was sitting here in tears. Um going to go there again. <clears throat> this lesson today, I wish there was some way you could put it on YouTube and we could share it with people who are on the journey to affirmation. Oh my gosh. Even some of us here had never heard some of the things you shared today. And um, several of us were in, in agreement. We wish that we could share this lesson with other people. Well, you're absolutely free to. When I post it later today, that link is on YouTube and it, all of the lessons are and they're freely shareable. Oh, awesome. Because, oh my gosh, this, I wish somebody had told me that 15, 20 years ago. You know what I'm saying? Um, I could have come to this conclusion a lot sooner. I had to study it on my own and come to the conclusion on my own. Um, but I just, the second question, what do you think was causing the internal tension between your gut and your mind? I wrote this down. We didn't get to talking about it in our group, but I wrote down the Holy Spirit's leading because I feel like the Holy Spirit was talking to me and saying, I don't care if this is what you have learned since you were as young as you can remember in the church. That's not my truth. And if you tell a non-affirming Christian that the Holy Spirit led you into affirmation, they look at you like you have four heads. Yes, absolutely. I, um, I have been told that I let my heart lead and therefore I threw out um, orthodoxy because if if my daughter had not come out, then I would have stayed true to the, the doctrinal truths of the church, and I just let my heart run away with me. I'm so glad I became affirming before my kids came out so that I people can't say to me, oh, you only became affirming because your kid. Nope. Yeah. I, I became affirming because God. Well, but it doesn't matter the reason by, why it's when you think about these people that you care about, that you have relationship with, they're good people and you want to be supportive, you know, 
whether they're related to you or not. You know, we always told our children growing up that it didn't matter to us. It wouldn't matter. Yeah. We would love them either way. And I still have a daughter who will be 31 next month and she's single. And I literally during this Bible study got a text from her today that said, mom, did you ever get nervous or scared around guys when you were dating? So I have to respond to that later. You know, she just doesn't have time to date, you know, whether it was girls or guys, she just doesn't. So I don't get any grandkids from that one. Not like me, Julie. Well, I'm kind of sad because I would love her to have some children. I have, I have six kids. I thought I had two boys and four girls, but I have three boys and three girls. And the, my transgender son is the one who originally wanted to be a wife and a mom and have kids. That was the one that was going to give me grandkids. And now he says, he's, as soon as he is able to pay for it, he wants to have the top surgery and is still, the verdict is still out on bottom surgery or not. And originally he was saying that when he got married, he would be willing to carry a baby so that they could have a child. And now he's saying, uh, not so much. And I'm like, yeah, I may never have grandkids either. So I'm just going to take the adopted ones I have and call it a day. Yep. It's quite a My 24 year old just said, thanks for believing in me, mom. <laughs> but you do, you take what they give you and you love it. Yep. Because really, you know, I, I've come to realize that um, trying to identify people's relationship with God based on their sexual orientation or their presentation or anything having to do with sex doesn't hold water, not in the witness of the Holy Spirit and not in the Bible. I mean, we've only gotten through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you know, we've just gotten through Genesis. How much did we see in Genesis? Like that if we tried to apply our, you know, Christian cultural standards, Western standards to those people, we'd have those folks locked up. Gail, when we were talking about the questions about the first one is what's at risk about your views? I don't know. I, I was brought up with standard Christian views that this was wrong, and I don't know at what point it changed because it, I never really cared. It wasn't my bedroom, as I explained. It, it didn't apply to me. It's not my business. It's somebody else's business, and I don't really want to know what's going on in their bedroom because that's their personal business. I care about their relationship with me and how they treat others in life. Right. And after you, you know, whether it's a, a sudden thing where your mind comes up to it um, and then, you know, it seems like there's this lag for the heart. Sometimes your heart changes first and then you go back and convince your mind, you know, you go back and find the evidence that you need for your mind, which is what I did. That was the order that I did this. Um, sometimes like, for example, if someone is listening to this video, 
this may be the first time their mind has ever been presented with this and they've ever even considered that there might be another direction to go. In that case, their heart's going to have to catch up with their mind. It, we have to reintegrate our heart, our mind, and our faith all together, you know, when there's this kind of change. And so the questions that you guys did not get to um, had to do with what kind of things can you do or have you done to reintegrate your mind and your gut feel? You know, for me, my mind was all the way there, 100%. I could totally see this. It aligned with my faith. I understood about the Holy Spirit and about fruit. But my gut still just, I got a rock in the bottom of my stomach when I saw homosexual displays of affection. So what do you do when you're in that situation? What kinds of things help? One of the things that I did um, was, um, you know, first I did, I did um, a deep dive to try and align my faith with my reality, with my daughter. Um, and once I had done that work, there's a, there's a, a place here in Seattle called Lambert House that is uh, a safe space for LGBTQ teens um, where they can go after school, they have support groups, they have a computer lab so that homeless LGBTQ kids can get their GED, can apply for jobs. Um, they provide dinner every night for the kids and then they have activities so that the kids can have community and friendship and support. And my daughter had told me about this place and um, I stumbled, and it's totally a God thing, but I stumbled onto the, their website shortly before the holidays one year and they said they were looking for volunteers. And something in my heart said, you know, that might be a good thing for you to do. And I looked to see what kind of volunteers they needed and they needed somebody to cook dinners a couple nights a week. And so I thought, well, I can do that. I love to cook. I've cooked for tons of teens over the years. And so I reached out to them and I said, you know, let me just be upfront. I'm a Christian mom. I have a daughter who's, who's gay. And they immediately, you know, interviewed me, did a background check, brought me in to start cooking dinners. And I immersed myself in getting to know these kids. And there were kids from all across the gender spectrum and the sexual orientation spectrum. And initially I felt like a fish out of water, um, learning pronouns, learning not to make assumptions based on appearance, accepting that, that kids that to me looked so strange were feeling comfortable in their own skin for the first times in their lives. And just immersing myself in a foreign land really helps me overcome that 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 gut response of oh don't do that because people are going to stare you know <laughs> and reminding myself don't stare um, and that really helped i think getting to know lbgtq people is a great place to start allowing yourself i mean what would you do if you were going to go into another culture? You learn the language. And if there's anybody around you that's from that place, you get to know that person because it helps you learn about the culture you're going into. It's the same with people who are LBGTQ. I mean, we 
most of us grew up being taught how that was an abomination. Just put it out there. That's what we were taught. Right. And because of that, we look at it and view it as disgusting. But it's not. A loving relationship between two people is beautiful. And until you get to know people who are in the community, it is a foreign culture. It is weird or whatever adverb or adjective you want to use. Until you get to know people, then you have the opportunity to find out they're just like me. They're just another human being struggling to get through this world who, you know, the LBGTQ agenda is, I want happiness. I want love. I want a roof over my head. I want to be able to buy food. I want, their agenda is the same as anybody else's agenda to live their life. I think that you bring up a really great point, Shirley, and that is, it is, like a culture, you know, a different culture. Um, And one of the things, think about this as kind of a parable because, because if I wanted to immerse myself in learning about French people who are clearly different, just going to lay that out there. <laughs> Talk about weird. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're, they're hard to no, get. Kidding. Back. Kidding. Any French people watching this? Like, yeah, no. <laughs> people, the French culture, the people in France are hard to get to know. It's a, just a very different culture than America. And, um, but if I went there, as you say, I would try to learn their language, which I don't know that I could even do, but I would try. I would try to learn their language. I would, listen to them. And I would not go in there with a preconception, hopefully, of what I think their culture is, should be, and how they view themselves. But I would listen to them and believe them when they tell me what France is like. That is such a huge thing with between Christians and the LGBTQ. We don't believe them when they tell us what France is like (laughs) you know they don't we don't believe them when they say I did pray I did try to change this I practically killed myself trying to change this it can't be changed why would we believe the French person and not believe the LGBTQ person the only reason is because of our ingrained cultural prejudice and because of the risk to ourselves whenever you've got that kind of oh no it can't be that feeling you they are coming too close to something that is dangerous for you personally in your life because the risk is you can lose your church over it you can lose your faith community if you change your views you can lose your marriage if you change your views. What you cannot lose is God. Amen. And so we are to the end of class today. And as always, I'm glad to keep talking. Thank you, Gail. Gail, when we were talking, um, well, when I was talking, I was sharing with our small group that 
when I was in the Baptist church and getting divorced, um, it, I was shunned because of my situation. And I was made to feel like I was wearing a scarlet letter. I was young. I was attractive. I just didn't want my husband. I didn't want the other women's husbands. But they treated me very poorly. And I kept going to church because I had young children that needed to be in church. Um, so I, I endured it. But there was a time, and there still is a time in some churches where even divorce treats people that way. So how much worse is it for the community that we're talking about, you know? And if we could just embrace them, luckily I did change churches. I went to a Methodist church later and they didn't treat me the same way, but Right now, there's a big controversy in, in that church, which might cost me where I, my membership is. I don't know. We'll have to see when the vote comes up. You know, what, what we went through, and my daughter wasn't even out at that point. She was just out as affirming. But we had, um, she was not allowed to go on a mission trip because of her views of gay rights and, and affirming. That's, that just. And there were people going on the mission trip, heterosexual people going on the mission trip. These were teenagers going on the mission trip who were doing drugs. Now, of course, the leadership didn't know they were doing drugs, but there were people doing drugs. There were people that were having sex. My daughter at the time was asexual and wanted to stay that way until she got in college and things changed. But, um, she was not having sex. She was not doing drugs. She was not drinking. She was living the kind of life they were telling you you're supposed to be living when these heterosexual kids were not. And yet she was being disciplined. They were putting her in a discipleship program, which I don't even know if they realized that what they were putting her in was conversion therapy but it was. And even my husband, who still believes that homosexuality is a sin, but that it's okay that that's who you are because it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's not my business. So even he was like, uh, no, that's wrong. <laughs> They're not doing that to my daughter. And so that was the day we left that church. He had already left before. He left a long time before I did. It took a little longer for me to uh, come to grips with reality. <laughs> yeah. But up to that point, I had not come out as an ally, even though I was. I had not come out as affirming, even though I was. And it took them trying to put my daughter in conversion therapy for me to get to the point where I came out of the parent closet or the ally closet or whatever you want to call it. I came out on Facebook saying, I love you. It's not a sin. I don't care what you've you've been taught for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I was taught that too. And I have come to the realization that what we were taught is not what the Bible says. I had my favorite pastor whom I love to this day 
write me a letter telling me that I was leading people to hell because I had become a firm. And he has no idea how that Because the one thing that I had lived my life for was leading people to Christ. And for him to tell me leading people to Maybe someday he'll see this and understand. I don't know. But God is working in each one of us. And our responsibility is not to say, okay, this, this is tradition and this is what I believe or this. Our responsibility is to listen to the Holy Spirit's leading. And if the Holy Spirit's leading us to change, then the reason for it. When I started my three-year Bible study, I went into it saying, doggone it, this is what I've been taught for my entire life, and I'm going to prove at the time I was in my 50s. So I'm like, for 50 years I've been being taught this, and I'm going to prove that's what the Bible says. So I went into it trying to prove that the Bible condemned homosexuality. And after three years of study, which ended up leading me to um, um, Unclobbered, the book Unclobbered, um, and studying those verses and going back, and I don't speak Greek or Hebrew, but I would look up things on the internet, um, Hebrew to English, and do a translation on Google if that's what I could find. I would um, look into books that had information about the Hebrew and the Greek words and what they actually meant and all this stuff. I would look up etymology of, of English words. I mean, that, I was in-depth studying this for three years, and I came out the other end affirming when I went in trying to be proving it was a sin, and I came out the other end saying, oh my gosh, we screwed up. Then I got into the groups on Facebook that had other moms like me that were Christians that had become affirming. Then I met Susan Cottrell, and I, I met, I actually met Susan in person, but I met Pastor Gail, and I met, you know, all these, Marlene and these other ladies who are so wonderful. And the change in me has been the actual 180. And you know, when God calls us to repent of our sin, sometimes we are sinning and don't realize we're sinning. And I feel for so many years I was sinning against God and against people that he loves and died for. And I actually knew one young lady when I met her, but by the time it changed, it was a young man, and he has been absolutely a godsend to me, and he was the one that helped me reconcile my mind and my heart, because I loved him with all my heart, and he was transitioning, and I came to realize he had always been him. He was never her. And it took him a while to figure it out and to be able to transition. And he is so happy now. And then becoming affirming and then watching my own daughter who, when she was a little girl, I used to look at her and go, I think something messed up. I think she was supposed to have been a boy. 
and you know, here I have this little girl, and she beautiful curly long locks, and you know, she's a beautiful little girl. Loved dresses, but that was about the only girly thing she liked, and fingernail polish. And she still loves fingernail polish. The dress is not so much, but she. And she loves stuffed animals, but she didn't like dolls. She didn't like playing house. She didn't like um, all the girly things that her sisters all loved. You know, Barbies? No. And here she was. And I would, I would think something's wrong. She was supposed to have been a boy. Later, when she started transitioning, and now he is Benjamin. And Benjamin told me, well, you know, even back, because both of the boys' birthdays were in June, and Bethany, now Benjamin's birthday, is in June. And Benjamin used to say to himself in his head, not out loud, that's really cool, all the boys' birthdays are in June. I never knew that until about a year ago. He finally confessed that to me, that he thought he was a boy back then. He couldn't figure out why he had a vagina instead, because he knew he was a boy. So, yeah. Affirming, absolutely. And how did I get that one? God. It's a it, God thing. It's quite a journey. It is a scary journey, especially for Christians, because it's fraught with the whole, what you started out with about leading people astray and, you know. Um, and so that, I think, is why I wanted to give you that one particular tool that I told you was so important, Jesus tool, because that is how you stay on the path. And Jesus promised, Jesus promised us that if we go astray, if we fall off the cliff, he's going to come get us and carry us home on his shoulders. I believe him. I trust him, and you can believe him too. So let's um, just carry this. That's the first time I've actually said that in a public forum. So, and I'm good with that. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you for offering that. Um, and do feel free to share the video, this video, or any of the others. On the, that's why I record them, is so that we can share them. Um, as we need to. And um, I love you all. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for this class. And we'll see you next week.